Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and minister to your congregation. Lord, these are your sheep. They've been bought with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. You told me to be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And Lord, what a thing it is to think that this congregation has been purchased with the very blood of God, God incarnate. And so, Lord, we ask that you would open up this text of Scripture today, and especially to those who you will raise up to be preachers. May it be especially relevant, but for the entire congregation, we pray that it would be relevant and applicable as we seek to sit under biblical preaching, and we seek to make sure that we don't sit under non-biblical preaching. So give us grace today, Lord, to hear your voice as the Good Shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is giving Timothy a very solemn and weighty charge. And the essence of that charge is, preach the word. Now in chapter 1, he told Timothy to guard the word. In chapter 2, suffer for the word. In chapter 3, continue in the Word. But in chapter 4, the message is, preach it. Preach the Word. And we've been talking about what it means to exercise biblical preaching within the local church. Today, preaching is not very popular. Biblical preaching and teaching have fallen on hard times. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is just the day and the age in which we live. We live in a video age, a visually stimulated age. We grew up, if you go back a couple generations, they didn't have television. So they grew up, you know, getting their guitars and banjos on the front porch and playing music. Or maybe they had a radio they would listen to. But we're in a very visually stimulated age. We're used to television. We're used to watching 10 or 12 minutes and then there's a commercial. And so we feel like in this age, people can't listen to a sustained discourse for more than 20 minutes or so without losing their concentration. If you went back into the 1800s, you would go to an age in which the, president, the presidential candidates would debate each other for hours, two or three hours. And this would be deep thinking. And the people would come out and they would be used to this kind of thing, listening for a sustained period of time and, and really giving it their thought and their concentration. Well, we don't live in that kind of an age anymore. We live in an age of entertainment. We live in an age where kids from, from birth up are constantly seeking to be entertained. They've got television, they've got their videos, they've got their little um, playstations, you know, those kind of video games and computer games, and most of them have phones now with games on them, and constantly games and entertainment rushing at them 24 hours a day. And so when someone stands up to preach the word, it's a difficult task. Because preaching, compared to all of this video flood, is pretty boring. It's pretty boring. And so people today have, for the most part, gone a different direction when it comes to preaching. They're no longer preaching the way that the Apostle Paul talked about preaching to Timothy, where we talk about a text of Scripture, expounding a text, opening up and explaining and applying a text of Scripture and taking your time to do that so that sermons are 45 or 50 minutes or an hour long. Instead, the tendency today is to have short sermonettes, maybe 15 or 20 minutes, and they're very different from explaining and applying Scripture. They're basically how-to sermons. How to get through the holiday season without too much stress or how to manage your finances, or how to raise great kids, or how to have a wonderful marriage. These kinds of practical sermons, because we live in a day in which we're trying to attract the unchurched to church, and when they get there, the only things that they're really interested on are those kinds of sermons, things that would affect their life practically. Paul knew nothing of those, that kind of preaching. Paul said, preach the word. The word of the living God is what we are to be preaching. And so, yes, preaching has fallen on hard times. At the bridge, we are committed to biblical preaching. If you haven't figured it out yet. 
<laughs> that's what drives us. At least that's what drives our Sunday morning gathering. Is an exposition, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, book by book, through the Bible, so that God's people are fed His Word. So there's a continual diet of sound teaching going forth from the Word of God that we might grow into spiritual maturity. That's what we're all about here on Sunday mornings. Now, Paul's been talking to Timothy about how to do that. And last week we noted four ways that Timothy was to preach. He was to preach solemnly. He said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, was a solemn charge. He was to solemnly preach. Secondly, he was to preach biblically. He said, preach the word. Not your opinions and speculations and jokes and stories and anecdotes and wit and humor and creativity. No. He was to preach the word of the living God, this book. Thirdly, he was to preach continually. He said, be ready in season and out of season. When it's convenient, when it's not convenient. When they're listening, when they're not. When people love you, when they hate you. Just keep on preaching in season and out of season. And then fourthly, he was to preach faithfully. He said, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So be faithful to the souls of the people in your congregation. If they need to be reproved, reprove them. If they need to be rebuked, rebuke them. If they need encouragement, exhort them. And keep on doing it with great patience and great instruction. In other words, preaching is never divorced from teaching. Instruction or teaching and preaching go together like a hand in a glove. They're, they're a couplet. So preach solemnly. Preach biblically. Preach continually. And preach faithfully. And we're going to pick up our, our teaching with number five this morning. Preach urgently. Preach urgently. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Notice he says, the time will come. What's Paul doing here? He's prophesying. He's telling about something that is yet to come in the future. And this isn't the first time Paul has done that when he has written to Timothy. It's his third time. Let me, and you can actually follow these with me. But the first one is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. He said, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. The Spirit says, in later times, some will fall away from the faith. Second prophecy, 2 Timothy chapter 3 We studied this not too many weeks ago, verses 1 to 5. He says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, Treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. And then the third and final prophecy comes in this section. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Notice, first of all, the time specified for each one of these prophecies. The first one, he says, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times this will happen. 2 Timothy 3, but realize this, that in the last days... 2 Timothy 4, for the time will come. And notice that each one of these prophecies has sort of a negative ring to it. Things are going to get bad. Things are going to, bad things, uh, corrupting things are going to take place within the world and the church. 
The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some are going to fall away from the faith. There's going to be an apostasy, a turning away from the true faith. And the second one, he says, difficult times. The word means perilous or dangerous or ravenous. Very difficult, violent times are going to come because men will be so evil. And the last one, he says, men are not going to endure sound doctrine. And when he says times, the word is, it's the word for epoch or season. It doesn't mean it's going to be exactly this way all through history, but there will be these seasons and times, these epochs which will arise throughout the history of the church when things are going to be like this. My friends, I believe that we are in one of those times today when he says they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and they're going to turn aside to myths. We're in a day like that now. He says they will not endure sound doctrine. The word means they'll not tolerate it. They won't abide it. They're not going to put up with it. Now what is it they're not going to put up with? Sound doctrine. What does that mean? It means healthy teaching. Teaching that causes Christians to be healthy, spiritually mature, growing Christians. It'll be teaching that causes them to have a zeal for God, a hatred for their sin, a love for holiness, a desire to turn from evil, a desire to be found pleasing in the presence of God. It's going to be teaching that causes them to humble themselves, to lower themselves and to exalt Christ. This is the kind of teaching that is healthy. And this is the kind of teaching that they will not endure. They'll not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. The New Living Translation puts it this way. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. I think that's a good paraphrase of what he was getting at. They're going to be looking for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. In other words, they've got this itch and they're looking for somebody to scratch it. They're not looking for truth. They're looking for something that their ears enjoy. They're not looking for someone who will tell them what they need to hear. They're looking for someone who will tell them what they want to hear. And they will accumulate for themselves teachers, many of them, not one. They'll accumulate for themselves all kinds of people that will just keep on telling them what they like to hear. And so these preachers, whoever they are, will scratch where the people itch. They're going to be looking for a teacher who tells them that God wants them to be rich and healthy. It's never the will of God for you to suffer or for you to be sick or for you to go through times of want, even times of poverty, even though Jesus' own parents were very poor. They had to offer the the cheapest of all the sacrifices when Jesus went to be circumcised, the turtle doves, rather than the ram or the goat. The health and wealth, that's what God wants for you. Or they'll tell them things like, your children are saved because they made a profession of faith when they were eight or nine years old, even though they're not living for God anymore. But you, they're still saved. They're still going to heaven. You'll hear that many times. Or they'll tell you things like, well, the reason God exists really is to make you happy. That's His purpose for being. In fact, you are the center of God's existence. No, not so. God is the center of God's existence. And we exist to make Him happy. That's the truth. They'll tell you things like, Um, Well, let me just put it this way. I was thinking about this this last week, and I was thinking, you know, oftentimes people have to choose a church to go to. And if you ask them, well, why did you choose this church, and why did you choose that church? If someone told you, well, I chose it because the preacher's always telling me what I love to hear. Bad sign. (laughs) That's what these folks were doing. And Paul was rebuking that whole idea of people accumulating for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires rather than God's desires. When you choose a church, choose a church not necessarily where they're going to tell you everything you want to hear, but where they're going to tell you what you need to hear. Where they're going to tell you the truth whether you like it or not. Whether you get upset and leave and never come back or continue to stay. 
Choose a church where the guy's always telling you what God says. And he never stops telling you what God says. Because that's the only thing that's important. It doesn't matter what they think. Really? It doesn't, doesn't matter hill of beans. It matters what God has already said. The living God has spoken. And He's spoken and given to it us that word in a book. And the only man worth listening to is a man who will tell you again what God has said. Now, if he wants to use illustrations to help us understand what God has said, great. If he can tell a story that will help you to understand better what God has said, perfect. But if he's just telling you things to entertain you, to try to keep you coming back, to try to show off how witty and clever he is, walk out and don't come back. You want to sit under a man who's going to tell you the word of the living God. There's a whole bunch in this book that goes against our carnal nature. Isn't there? The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit sets its desire against the flesh. So if you're looking for somebody who'll just tell you what you want to hear, watch out because there's a lot in you that doesn't like what God wants and is going to lust after something that will just puff itself up and make you the center of God's universe and make you a proud, covetous, ungodly person. Watch out. Notice he says, wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves. For themselves. This is all about them. It's not about God. It's what they want to hear. They don't have a God-centered perspective on the Christian life. They have a man-centered, self-centered, self-absorbed perspective on the Christian life. It's all for themselves. And then he says they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth. Once that happens, what does it lead to? they will be turned aside to myths. Myths. This is why it's so urgent. That's why Timothy had to preach urgently. Because what happens when someone turns away from the truth and turns aside to myths, where does that lead him? That leads him to a lost condition where he will perish under the wrath of God because he has denied the truth. He has rejected the truth. And so Paul is telling Timothy, you need to be urgent about preaching the word because there is a time coming when many people are going to turn aside from the truth to myths. So preach the word zealously, fearlessly, and urgently now while you can so that you can rescue and snatch and persuade as many of those people that might have gone that direction as possible. I was thinking this week about the idea of people being turned aside from truth to myths. And I started to write down all of the myths that people believe these days. Myth number one. The myth that we're experiencing hell right now. If you go out and start sharing your faith, almost the first thing people will tell you is, if you mention that we're in danger, you are in danger of perishing, of entering everlasting punishment. They'll say, oh, that's happening right now. I've got my own hell right now, right, right in this world. It's a myth. Myth number two. There are many roads that lead to God. And as long as you believe in something and are sincere, you'll make it to heaven. That's a myth. Number three. The myth that almost everyone, except maybe for Hitler, rapists, and serial killers, are going to heaven. You talk to people and they just, they just expect just about everybody's going there. I've talked to people close to me and my extended family. This is what they believe. God is infinitely merciful, they say. But Jesus said, the road that leads to life is narrow and few find it. I would rather believe Jesus than another man. And Jesus gives his authoritative word on the subject. No, the minority of people, according to Jesus, will be saved. Myth number four, you need to learn to love yourself before you can love God or others. Jesus never taught us to do that. We already love ourselves far too much. Myth number five. The reason Christ died for you is because you were so valuable to Him. In other words, the reason why He was willing to pay such a high price, an infinitely high price, is because you were so infinitely valuable. And so He was laying down such a high price because you were worth it. 
No, it's because you were so sinful. That's why the price had to be paid so highly. The cross doesn't tell us how valuable we are to God. It tells us how sinful we were and the price that God needed to pay to redeem such sinners. Myth number six. We need to believe in ourselves. And we need to tap all of our untapped potential to be all that we can be for God. It's this idea of looking within. You've got what it takes. Just keep looking inside long enough you'll find it. No. We don't believe in ourselves. We believe in Christ. We find all of the strength and resources not in ourselves but in Him. We're not self-dependent. We're Christ-dependent. Myth number seven. God exists to make you happy. I don't think that needs any explanation. Myth number eight. If you just raise your hand or walk down an aisle at an altar call, you're saved and you should never doubt it again. Friends, that's a myth. This is not the evangelism that Jesus conducted. It's not the evangelism we see in the book of Acts. Show me one place. Just show me one place where there was ever an altar call. Can you think of anywhere where somebody said just come down here to the front or raise your hand and repeat this prayer after me and you're saved? It never happened anywhere in the Bible. We've invented this system. Now, God could use it, and I'm sure God does use it, but that's, there's, there's a far cry from saying God could use something and saying that this is a biblical invention. Well, it's an invention, but it's not God's. It's an invention of man. And we're under no obligation to abide by this particular system. Okay, myth number nine. You can be saved without repenting of sin. There is a whole school of Christianity that teaches that repentance is not necessary to be saved. Even though Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Even though Peter said that um, God is long-suffering, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to what? Repentance. Even though Peter on the day of Pentecost said, they said, what shall we do to be saved? He said, repent. Repentance is essential to salvation. Myth number 10. As long as you make your decision for Christ or ask Jesus into your heart or accept Christ, you're saved. Even if you continue to live in sin or neglect Christ in your life. Now, the reason I was doing this with my fingers is putting those in quotes is because those are all sort of Christian catchphrases that have developed over the 1800s and 1900s, and this is how we talk about evangelism. You know, accepting Christ, asking Jesus in your heart. Um, you know, words like that, making a decision for Christ. These are not phrases that you'll find in your Bible. The Bible talks about being converted, being born again, repenting of sin, trusting in Jesus, receiving Christ. Those are biblical expressions, but these other ones have no place in the scripture. And we, we have a whole school of Christianity that does teach this. Once you have done that, whatever that thing is, you can go on and live whatever way you want to, but you're saved. As long as there's a, a date where you have done this thing, whatever that thing is, it doesn't matter what your, the rest of your life shows. You're in. Myth number 11. The myth that you can have your best life now and still go to heaven. If you're having your best life now, that means that heaven is worse than this life. The only people that are having their best life now are people that are going to hell. So you can't have your best life now and be on your way to heaven. It's impossible. Myth number 12. God wants every Christian to enjoy complete health and wealth right now. We've already talked about Touched on that. Myth number 13. The myth that God doesn't want His people to suffer. 1 Peter 4.19. He talks about those who suffer according to the will of God. Myth number 14. The myth that the Christian life is an easy one. Whoever told you that? <laughs> Jesus told us that it's like um, people pressing into the kingdom striving, agonizing to get into the kingdom. That doesn't sound like it's some kind of an easy jaunt through a park to me. Myth number 15. That a person can have no hunger for and delight in God and still be saved. That's an impossibility. 
When you are born again, there is a built-in desire and hunger for God in your soul. Myth number 16. The myth that living for earthly riches or sensual pleasures is more fulfilling and more satisfying than living for Jesus Christ. That's a myth, because it's not true. Spiritual riches are more satisfying by far to the person who has a spiritual nature than any other riches of this world can afford. So people are going to turn aside from the truth... And they're going to turn aside to all kinds of myths. And we just listed off 16 of them. You might have your own list that you could add to that. Myth after myth after myth. And notice this. The New American Standard says that they will turn aside to myths. But if you were to look at the literal Greek here, it's a passive verb, not an active one. It means they will be turned aside to myths. They will turn aside their ears from the truth. They will do that actively. But after they have made the decision to turn their ears away from the truth, they are then turned aside to myths. Now, who do you think is doing the turning if it's not them? I believe it's God himself bringing judgment upon them. I'll read you a scripture from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, describing the man of lawlessness in the very last days before Christ returns. Picking up in verse 10, it says, With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Well, why do they perish? Because they didn't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. They rejected the truth. They didn't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged, who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So what's happening? They rejected the truth. God, for that reason, sends upon them a deluding influence so that they might be judged. So when man persists in impenitence or unbelief, or if he persists in uh, rejecting the truth, there comes a time when God will confirm that, and he will send upon them a judgment according to this passage. So if you turn away your ears from the truth, watch out, because there may be a day when God is going to turn you aside and allow you to go headlong into myths and to stay there the rest of your life. It's like Romans 1, He will give you over. Instead of restraining you from going down that path, He'll say, okay, you want it so bad? Go for it. Run down that path that's going to lead you straight to hell. Now through this passage, Paul's been talking about the truth. They'll turn away, the, turn away their ears from the truth. And that was a phrase that comes up in the pastoral epistles many, many times. I just want to show you how Paul uses that phrase in First and Second Timothy. First Timothy 2.4 God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. First Timothy 3.15 I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God the pillar and support of the truth. 1 Timothy 4.3 Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. 1 Timothy 6.5 Men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. 2 Timothy 2.18 Men who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place. 2 Timothy 2.25 With gentleness, correcting those who were in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 3.7 Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 3.8 And just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. Do you think Paul believed that the truth was important? More than just important, it was ultra important. Men are saved or lost depending on whether they adhere to the truth. Obedience to truth, faith in the truth is essential. And he says these people are turning away their ears from the truth. That's the word of God. And they're turning aside to these myths. And so that's why it's so urgent, Timothy, that you preach the word. Stick your finger in the dam 
Stop the onrush of ungodliness. Stop the onrush of people turning away from truth, turning away from God's word and turning to all kinds of ridiculous myths. Stop it. Do whatever you can, Timothy. Preach the word. Lift up your voice. Be a sounding voice for the truth of the living God. If people perish, they're going to have to run right over you, telling them the truth in their face. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. So preach urgently. Timothy preaches a dying man to dying men. Never sure to preach again. So preach urgently. And then he would tell him, preach fearlessly. Because he tells him, endure hardship. Endure hardship, Timothy. Now why would Timothy have to endure hardship? Well, if he's preaching the truth, that's why he's going to have to endure hardship. Because people don't want it. Remember, the masses are going to be turning away their ears from the truth and turning aside to myths. They're going to oppose the truth that you preach. They don't want to hear that. It doesn't scratch them where they're itching. They don't like it. And so there's going to be suffering and hardship that you will have to embrace if you are a faithful preacher of the Word of God. Paul was facing it, wasn't he? He was in prison in Rome. He was in a dungeon somewhere because he was a fearless faithful preacher of the Word of God. And Paul is saying, Timothy, if you also preach the Word without compromise, you're going to have to be willing to endure hardship. Now, do you think that those preachers who are telling the people what they wanted to hear needed to endure hardship? I can't think of a reason why. Because everybody loves what they have to say. In our day and age, the biggest church in America is run by someone who will not preach against sin. He won't talk about sin. But yet he's got thousands and thousands and thousands of people who flock to hear him week after week after week. He's heard all over the nation on radio and television. He's the most, they call him the most inspirational speaker in America today. But yet this man won't talk about sin, repentance, judgment, or hell. Which are prominent themes that the Bible talks about All the way through. You can't read for five minutes without encountering one of those themes in the Bible. He's not preaching the Word. He's preaching motivation and inspiration and how to do this and how to be successful and how to be wealthy and happy. But he's not teaching what God has said. So, Timothy, endure hardship. What you have to be willing to do, Timothy, is to suffer for the truth. Suffer for the truth. It was said of John Knox at his grave, There lies a man who never feared the face of any man. They said John Knox was a fearless preacher. He was a Scottish reformer in the 1500s. He confronted the queen, who was a Catholic, to her face. And she burst into tears at one point. And the courtiers said, Desist and stop, man. Can't you see that she's weeping? And he wouldn't let her go. He kept at her urging her to repent of her sins and put uh, her faith in Jesus Christ. And eventually he was uh, uh, banished from England. And he spent his time as an under rower on a ship for 16 months straight, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They were given one uh, piece of bread to eat per day. And once every two or three weeks, they got a bowl of soup. I mean, a lot of people died as under rowers for the queen on her ships. Knox was subjected to that as a slave because he preached fearlessly before the queen. The queen said that she feared Knox's prayers more than all the enemies, the the armies that would arrayed against her. Fearless man of God. John the Baptist was a fearless man, wasn't he? Cost him his life, but he wouldn't back down from the truth. Jesus was a fearless preacher of the gospel. Got him crucified, but he told people the truth. And you can count the martyrs of church history one after the other. John Huss, William Tyndale. These are the kinds of men that were made of steel. And why were they so strong? Why could they face the flames? Why could they go to their death singing the praises of God while the flames licked at their feet and devoured them? It was because the Word of God had made them like steel. They were anchored in truth. They wouldn't be moved. 
They were so convinced that this was the word of the living God that it transformed their life and made them rock solid, depending on the sovereignty of God. And that's what we need today. We need to have this kind of holy confidence in God's book that it, it will make us solid. No matter who comes against us, if we know God has said it, we don't care. We hold to it because we know it's the truth. Spurgeon said, I cannot shape the truth. I know of no such thing as paring off the rough edges of a doctrine. John Knox's gospel is my gospel. That which thundered through Scotland must thunder through England again. Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and afterwards have nothing more they can do. I'll tell you who to fear. Kill him who after he has killed the body has authority to cast both body and soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And the men I've been talking to you about are men who feared God and that's why they didn't fear men. So preach not only, preach urgently, but preach fearlessly. Before you preach, talk to yourself. Tell yourself, I'm not here to please man. I'm here to please God. I'm not here to be afraid of what the opinion of, of these people are going to be. I'm here to be approved in your sight, O God. And ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with courage to speak the truth. That's what we need today, isn't it? We don't need people telling us things we want to hear that are lies and myths. We need people telling us what God has said. So preach fearlessly. Seventhly, preach evangelistically. He says, do the work of an evangelist, Timothy. Now, Timothy wasn't an evangelist. He was an associate to Paul. He was sort of an apostolic representative who would be sent from Paul to this place or that place and to organize churches and then come back to Paul and go to this place. So he wasn't necessarily an evangelist, but Paul says, do the work of one. Do the work of an evangelist. So, what is the work of an evangelist? Okay. To, proclaim, to equip the saints for the work of what kind of ministry, though? Evangelizing. Well, let's try to define evangelizing for a moment. I'll give you my definition. To evangelize is to proclaim the good news of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for sinners. That's a very short definition. So to evangelize is to proclaim the gospel, the good news... And that good news is about a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. It's his life, death, burial, and resurrection. His life was a life of perfect righteousness that can be credited to the sinner. His death was a sin-canceling, wrath-absorbing death, atoning death that can take away sin. His resurrection tells us that he is alive today and can not only cancel the debt of sin, but can change the stony heart of the sinner because he's alive. It's not just that he can change a transaction or a record. He can change the heart and make it a new person out of that, that individual. So this is the good news. Timothy, do the work of evangelizing. Keep on proclaiming Jesus Christ as the sinner's only hope. So he is to do the work of an evangelism, which tells us that there is both a content and a focus of preaching. We saw the content of preaching in verse 2. Preach the Word. And in context, the Word, if you go back just a few verses, it's the sacred writings of 3.15, and it's Scripture of, verse, of chapter 3, verse 16. Preach the Bible, is what he's saying. Preach God's Word, all of it. That's the content, but there is a focus to that content. And the focus is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the central focus of the entire Bible from beginning to end. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is what all of it is leading to. He's the apex of all of it. So though we must preach the Bible, and though we must preach all of the Bible, we should do it in a Christ-centered way. Showing saints and sinners alike Jesus. So, whatever text you're looking at, look for how that text intersects with Christ. I love the way Spurgeon, when he was talking to a younger minister, he says, From every town, village, and little hamlet in England, 
wherever it may be, there is a road to London. And so from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures, that is, Christ. Your business is when you get to a text to say, now, what is the road to Christ? So take a text and then ask yourself, okay, what does this text teach me about Jesus? Why do I need Jesus to obey this particular text? Look for Jesus wherever you are at in the Bible. Look through your Bible. As you read the Bible, look through it with Christ-centered glasses. Because Jesus himself taught us that he is what it's all about. He said to the religious leaders of his day, you search the scriptures because you think that you, in them you have eternal life, but it's these that bear witness of me. So we are to preach evangelistically. Every pastor should do the work of an evangelist, meaning that when he's preaching to his congregation, he should also have enough Christ in that message that if a sinner is in that room, that sinner can be converted. There should be enough of the gospel in the gathering of God's people to save sinners. And he should be preaching, looking for Jesus in the text. Where's Jesus in this text? Verse 1. He's the judge of the living and the dead. He's going to appear, and he's going to reveal his eternal kingdom when he does. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the judge of the world, all men must give an account to Him. He's God over all. That's the Jesus that Paul is telling Timothy, you need to preach. Not only that Jesus, but also the Savior for the worst and most vile of sinners. Preach Him. Preach evangelistically. Do the work of an evangelist. And then number eight, preach purposefully. He says to Timothy, fulfill your ministry. And what does he mean? means make sure you finish the job God gave you to do. Timothy had been called by God into ministry. Paul recognized that. That's why Paul took him with him on his second missionary journey. That's why he and the other elders laid their hands on him. And as they did that, there, a prophecy came forth. Probably a word telling God telling Timothy what gift he had given to him. We find that out from uh, 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. So there was a call in his life to ministry. And so he is to fulfill that ministry. He's to do what God has called him to do, and he's to keep doing what God has called him to do until it's all done. Now, Paul did that very thing, didn't he? In the very next verse, he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. I did it. I fulfilled the ministry Jesus gave to me. Timothy, now you do what I've been trying to do and seeking to do my entire life. Do just what I've been doing. Fulfill it. Fill it full. Remember Jesus, on the night before he was to be crucified, said to his father in prayer, Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. We should have the desire in our heart that on our deathbed, we can say to God in prayer, Father, I have finished what you gave me to do. I didn't leave it undone. Now what is it that God has called you to do? You may not be called to full-time ministry like Timothy was, but he has called you to something. If you're a wife and mother, he's called you to be a godly wife and mother. If you're an employee, he's called you to be a faithful, godly employee. If you are a business owner, he's called you to treat your employees with respect and, and kindness, and not to try to abuse them or to use them for your own ends, but to seek their good. He's called you to be someone who would witness to the people around you in your neighborhood or where you go to school or where you go to work or the stores that you frequent. This is God's calling on us. And it gets specific to specific lives. We have a sense, don't we, that this is my destiny. This is what God wants from me. Fulfill it. Do it. Make sure that it gets done. Well, how do you do that? I think we can learn how a faithful preacher does that by looking at what Paul says in Acts chapter 20. Here Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders. And he's speaking to the Ephesian elders. He gathers them together. And he describes his own ministry among them while he was ministering to them. 
So, I want to read from uh, Acts chapter 20. We're going to read verse 20, 24, 26, and 27. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, here it is, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now, you find Paul's ministry described for us in several ways here. He says it was declaring to them anything that was profitable. It was solemnly testifying the gospel of the grace of God. It was testifying so that he was innocent of the blood of all men. And it was not to shrink from declaring the whole counsel, the whole purpose of God. Paul over in Colossians 1.28 puts it in a nutshell. He says, And we preach Him, that is Christ, admonishing every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we might present every man complete in Christ. So if Paul was to fulfill his ministry, it was to teach, and to preach, and to testify So that he wasn't guilty of the the blood of men. So that he could present every man complete in Christ. Timothy, do that. Fulfill that ministry. If you do that, you'll be doing well. And I look at that as, as God's call in my life for this particular church. Though we're few in numbers... That's actually a good thing because I'm going to have to give an account on Judgment Day for those souls that he put under my charge. And I, I guess it's a good thing not to have so many that you, have, you don't even know who they are. How can you possibly give an account for them? God has called us to be faithful, to do whatever we can do, to preach faithfully his word, to present every person complete, mature, in Jesus Christ. So let's... Let's wind this thing down this morning. Let me talk to those of you who God may be calling to be preachers. We probably have some people like that in this room. Preach solemnly. When you get up to teach and to preach the Word of God, don't act like a comedian. Don't take it flippantly. Someone once said, If you want God to use you as a prophet, don't try to be a clown. I'm not saying all humor is bad. I'm just saying don't make that your ambition to try to make everyone cut up as though with your jokes and humor and everything, you can just entertain the masses. You're not there to entertain the masses. You're there to bring the word of God to bear upon their lives. So preach solemnly, realizing that Jesus Christ is going to judge you. You are doing that preaching in his presence. He sees it. He hears it. He's coming again. And at that time, there's going to be a judgment of the living and the dead. And we will give an account. That's a solemn thought for anybody who would stand before people to open up this book and to tell them, this is what God says. Preach solemnly. Secondly, preach biblically. We have no other content to preach than the Bible. The Bible's our text. The Word of God is the great source and content of our preaching. Whenever you get up, make sure you're taking a text of Scripture, opening up that text, explaining it, and then applying it to those people that are listening. Preach continually. If God has truly called you to be a preacher, look for places to preach. And whether it's convenient or not, whether they love you or hate you, doesn't matter. Tell them the truth. Charles Simeon, for years and years and years, preached in a church where the people didn't like him and they didn't receive his ministry and he was persecuted by his own church. They locked the pews. Remember that story? John Piper has a great biographical sketch. of. If you've never heard this, go to DesiringGod.org and listen to that message on Charles Simeon. I think I've listened to it three times now. It was a man who just kept on preaching through adversity and eventually he had a breakthrough after years and years and years of being faithful to his people and loving them in spite of the fact that they wouldn't receive him. So preach in season and out of season, continually. Preach faithfully. 
If there are sins that need to be reproved and rebuked, don't shrink back from that duty. God has called you to do that. That's part of faithful preaching. Preaching has a negative and a positive tone to it. The negative one? Reprove. Rebuke. The positive? Encourage. Exhort. Both are necessary for God's people. Both are needed. So be faithful to people's souls. There are people there that need to be encouraged. But there's also people there that need to be rebuked. They need God's word to bear on their lives. So be faithful. Preach urgently, knowing that times are coming, and we're in one right now, where people would rather hear anything that will tickle their ears rather than the sobering truth that God has for them. So preach urgently, knowing that we're in a difficult time. That it could mean heaven or hell for somebody. Make sure that you're not just telling them what they want to hear, but you're telling them what God has said. Not only that, but we are to preach fearlessly. Make sure that when you stand to preach, you don't preach for the praise of man. Or so that someone will say, boy, that was such a great sermon. Just love what you had to say. I mean, that's always encouraging when someone says that, but make sure that's not your motive. That you're preaching for an audience of one. God Almighty is watching and listening. Remember verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. He's watching. He's your audience. So preach fearlessly. Preach evangelistically. Make sure Jesus Christ is the focus. Even though the Word of God is your content, there is a target. Jesus is the one that keeps showing up all the way through the Bible. And make sure the Gospel is prominent. And then if you're going to preach, preach purposefully. Preach so that you present every man complete in Christ so that when you have to give an account on Judgment Day, their blood is not on your hands. Because you told them the truth. And if they repent or don't repent, it's no longer your responsibility. You're the watchman on the wall. You see the enemy coming. So what do you do? Go back to bed and go to sleep? If so, when they attack and overrun that city, their blood is on your hands when you stand before God. But if you stand up and sound the trumpet and say, Run for cover! Soldiers, unite! The enemy's approaching! If you do that, their blood is not on your hands. If they go back to bed and go to sleep and they're killed in their beds, it's on their heads now, not on yours. Be a faithful watchman. So those of you who preach, listen to the Word of God. And those of you who don't, require that in this church, that's the kind of preaching you receive. If at any point we start to slip and go some other direction, call us back. It'll be the death of this church. It'll be a slow, agonizing death if we start to veer away from this book and stop preaching the Word of God the way Paul told Timothy to preach it. Health and life and strength and vitality come from that. That's the God-ordained means for a healthy church. So let's adhere to it by His grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for instructing us. We pray that You would give us grace as a church to base everything we are and everything we do upon this truth that You've given to us. Lord, may nothing ever supersede it. No experience that anybody ever has take precedence over your objective revealed will. Lord, I pray that the bridge would be known in this community as a place where God speaks again, week after week after week. In Jesus' name we ask that, Lord. Amen.